it's a very interesting thing to see my journey go from where it was to where it is. And if you would ask me even five years ago, if this is where I would be, I would probably think you were crazy. So that's what I hear when I hear radical resilience is like, you just, you just keep pushing forward and you find what works for you and, and thrive in it and love it. Obviously there's all of, there are its ups and downs, (laughs) but that's part of the resilience. This is Katie and I'm Laura and welcome to the Radical Resilience Podcast. Laura, how are you? I'm a pea in a pod. (laughs) (laughs) A couple peas in the cutest little pod. I am feeling quite the pea in the pod today, to be honest. Ooh, how come? So many like really fun and engaging conversations today specifically this week, generally like the last like week. Professionally or just life life? Yes. And (laughs) (laughs) all um, with people who like, I just am finding such surprising connections with. And even if like at first glance, I didn't think that we had that much in common, then we get chatting and I'm like, oh, we're like, meant to be best friends. And it's been a really, um, don't you replace me. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Please. Is there, like, I don't think that is, I don't let anyone else take my space. Yeah, I think you, I think they broke the mold <laughs> when they made you, <laughs> which is both wonderful and slightly terrifying at the same time. <laughs> Irreplaceable. Um, but yeah, so I'm feeling the pee in the pod today. Oh, wonderful. Well, I have a question for you. How did you sleep last night? Um, I slept on my back with my hands under my pillow. And then at some point in the night, I flipped over and slept on my belly with my hands under my pillow, leg in the four position. <gasps> Wait, you do like the, the four with, oh my God, you do that also? Yes, I do. <laughs> I've never, I don't know if I don't, I have never met anyone else who said with my leg in a four position. Oh, and it is why that like life has been immeasurably better for my, for my sleeping. My sleeping life has been immeasurably better since Josh and I moved in to his apartment and got the king size bed and out of my queen size bed, because in the queen size bed, there was not enough room for a four. There was not enough room for a four. There was only maybe enough room for like a two, which does not work for me in terms of sleeping comfortably. And so I slept great last night. And I bring it up because one of my friends who is a massage therapist was like, posting the different sleeping positions on Facebook today and talking about how, like how you sleep might affect like the exercises you want to do to strengthen muscles that can get weak or tight or whatever, because of the position that you sleep in. So that was immediately on my brain when you were like, how'd you sleep last night? Because I got really excited to tell everyone on Facebook that I'm a four hands under the pillows and like, and I'm a flippy floppy. Like I move all night long. And so I'm like belly back, belly back, but like, that's amazing. Also, after all my surgeries, they wanted me to, you know, cause all mine are usually like in the abdominal area and they always want you to sleep on your back and I couldn't. And they're like, it's the healthiest and the best thing for your body to do that for alignment and everything. And I was like, and I can't. And so <laughs> all night in the hospital or whatever, you know, they would shift me back or I had alarms if I moved to go that way. Cause of what, what I had, like, uh, you know, the tubes in anatomy. But uh, sleeping on your back is incredible. So the fact that you do it naturally, give yourself a round of applause to Lara's body. That's impressive, really. 
because I tried forcefully like in bed in a hospital where you can't move in many directions and I still fought it. You know what, though? I'm going to fight back against that assessment that the best sleep is on your back sleep because the best sleep is the sleep that you get. Like whatever actually gives you sleep is the best sleep. There's no like I'm like there needs to be no anxiety about this. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing it wrong. No, you're not. It's like when people are like, what's the best time to exercise? I'm like, what is the most likely time that you're going to do the exercise? And they're like, I don't know, 5 p.m. on Tuesday. I'm like, then that's the best time for exercise. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that there's all kinds of research that might like tell you like, you know, 6 a.m. on a on a full moon and blah blah like whatever. Unless you're gonna get up and do it, it ain't worth shit. So do it when <laughs> like the best time to do the exercises when you're gonna do it. Preach. How'd you sleep last night? Uh, I actually slept horrible, which I don't think I answer that question like that often. I woke up with like um, migraine that was so bad that I was having um, whatever those things are when like the room is like coming and going and stuff. The And then I went out to the other room to just sit and um, Southern California is on fire again. And so like all of the Majesca Canyon was being evacuated, which is so I went on Facebook and a bunch of my friends were being evacuated. So I was offering them our house and the, uh, you could smell the smoke in the air and stuff. And I was sitting outside and it was so windy from the Santa Ana um, winds. And so the dogs had followed me because we are a codependent trio. And they were like, they don't know wind because they're from Southern California. So they just know like paradise weather. And so they were like, what is what is with this wind? And so they were scared and they were barking at everything blowing and they were so confused. And I just had a migraine and they were barking. And I was like, oh my God. And um, I stayed out there, but then I stayed outside with them for like two hours because it felt nice to be in the wind. Like even though it was so smoky and gross. But I did come back and I did fall back asleep around four. And then I did get to sleep till 6.30. So uh, not the best sleep, not a four kind of sleep and not even a, I got sleep sleep, but I feel like tonight will be better. I did take Excedrin migraine at like 2.45 in the morning. because I was like, this has got to go. And it only worked a little. I sometimes get headaches that come on while I'm sleeping. And as I'm waking up in the morning, I can feel that like those are the worst ones to me. That's how it was. It woke me up. Those are brutal. Well, I'm going to be wishing you a better sleep tonight. Thank you. The good thing was I knew what was coming this day. I knew that we had rescheduled. And so I was like, oh, this crappy day where I didn't sleep. I have a migraine. We'll end with two amazing interviews for our podcast. I know. And the first one is the one you guys are going to listen to tonight, which is the incredible Dominga. And we're going to tell you all about her in just a minute, right after this break. Life is always happening nonstop every moment. Things either feel as if they're coming together or they're falling apart. When you're on this wild ride, the falling apart moments can feel like the end of who you are. But with the proper skill set, these circumstances that break us down become the moments that awaken us, build our strength, and cause us to grow. To prepare your skill set, I created the Revolutionary Resiliency Course, challenging yourself to go within, dig deeper, make discoveries, and learn while being guided through the exercises in soul work. Together, we will build resilience that is not just radical, but revolutionary. Visit our website, RadicalResiliencePodcast.com to get started. I love you and I'll see you there. 
And we are back. Dominga No was diagnosed with Marfan syndrome when she was nine years old. Originally from California, she began working for the Marfan Foundation in 2016 at its New York headquarters. She now lives and works from Kansas City, Missouri as the foundation's marketing and design manager. A longtime foundation volunteer, Dominga is the first staff member who has Marfan. Welcome, Dominga. Welcome, girl. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited you're here. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Katie's been going on and on about you all week. She is the best. Katie, you're absolutely the best. Aww. Tell me more. Just kidding. No, <laughs> no that's not what we came here for. I mean, <laughs> it's a little what we came here for. No. Um, Dominga, we are so excited to have you here. First of all, like it is incredible to know that uh, that a foundation that is all about a particular population has only just recently had their first staff member who is actually a person among that population so congratulations to you for being pioneering even though probably we should be past that point now <laughs> but <laughs> well the great thing about this is that while it's the first time someone's been in this position in an official capacity there has been there have been so many people that have been a part of this fantastic organization. They've, we had patients in particular and family members of patients that actually founded the organization and make up its board of directors as well as our, all of our volunteers. But yes, I am the first person in an official capacity to decide to make their diagnosis their career as well. So I get that. That well, still stands. Congratulations. Boom. You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, before we um, dive into your story and um, have you share with our audience uh, more about Marfan syndrome and, and what your life is like, um, we kick off every podcast with the same question. And it is really more of a reflection. So our podcast is called Radical Resilience. And it's a little bit of Katie and a little bit of me. Um, I bring the radical uh, and she brings the resilience. And they're both like pretty powerful words, but together they kind of take on a new meaning. And what they represent for every one of our guests is actually remarkably different. And so we would love to know when you think about those two words, radical resilience and all the many colors that they bring, what lands for you? How does that, how does that land for you, your life, your story, your perspective, whatever? Well, for me, I think part of it is actually what we've already mentioned, which is I have grown with this condition that for a long time was something that was just sort of an annoyance <laughs> to be completely honest. It was just one of those things that it just, it created so many uh, hurdles in my life. And then it wasn't until I finally realized that there was actually so much that you, it's not really about focusing about the things you can't do, but it's embracing the things you can and moving forward with that. And I think that's what I think about when I hear those words, because I've gotten to a point in my life where, like I've said, I've made this my career. I, I'm surrounded by it. My community are also my colleagues. And it's a very interesting thing to see my journey go from where it was to where it is. And if you had asked me even 
five years ago, if this is where I would be, I would probably think you were crazy. So that's what I hear when I hear radical resilience is like you just you just keep pushing forward and you find what works for you and and thrive in it and love it. And obviously there's all of there are its ups and downs, <laughs> but that's part of the resilience. Amazing. And and like you've definitely taken it to like a radical extreme of, like you said, making it, making your condition, your career. Exactly. (laughs) I was like, I I think that's the radical for sure. Yeah, (laughs) I really got that. I have, um, I just wanted to know if you can go for the listeners, just in depth a little bit more about what, what you're speaking about. So a lot of people might not know your condition or what it is, um, or just, you know, like that kind of bubble so that everything we discuss moving forward, they'll, they'll have a, a baseline. Absolutely. So Marfan syndrome, I was, as it's, as you so eloquently said, when you introduced me, I was diagnosed uh, back when I was about nine years old. My father had an aortic dissection, an emergency aortic dissection, and was rushed to the hospital right place, right time. Very fortunate there was a surgeon that was able to save his life and do the necessary surgery that unfortunately a lot of people in the Marfan community don't actually end up being that lucky. But my father is still with us here today, fortunately. And from his dissection, it was how my younger sister and I were both diagnosed with Marfan syndrome at Stanford Hospital. So it was a very interesting roller coaster of a time. Very broadly, stereotypically, people with Marfan syndrome uh, are tall, have long limbs, and my father is six foot eight. So seeing that big man look so small in a hospital bed was very much an, an awakening moment for myself. And then to not so much later after that experience be diagnosed with the same thing that put him in that situation not just myself, but also my younger sister, who was a toddler at the time, it was another awakening. And that was when I kind of closed myself off to what Marfan syndrome was. I I was very much, I don't need to know what it is. I'll just go to the doctor's appointments. You make sure I'm good. You tell me what I can do, can't do, and we're good. Wasn't until further into my adult life where I realized, okay, this is actually something that I might want to know the details about. And because of that, that was when I realized that it's not just the heart. It's actually so much more than that. Um, Marfan syndrome is a connective tissue disorder. It affects all of the connective tissue in the body and essentially weakens it. So the best analogy that I have is a rubber band. So think of all of the connective tissue in your body, your heart, your eyes, your joints. Think of that as sort of a rubber band where you just keep stretching it and to everyone else in the world, their normal rubber band just snaps back into place. But for people with Marfan syndrome, it just keeps stretching. And that's how aortic dissections happen. That's how people get detached retinas from Marfan syndrome. There are so many different aspects within the body that are affected. And it's something that has to be highly monitored. What I strive for and what a lot of people in our community strive for is early diagnosis because catching it early means early treatment between medication, surgeries, whatever is needed to treat each person with Marfan is because it's all very different. Even within my family, my father, my sister, and I have three very different cases of Marfan syndrome. So that's one of the beauties of it, but also the difficulties, I would say, because it's so unusual. I've been at the conference. That's where I've done, you know, like comedy and speaking and stuff at at her conference. And it's 
besides the fact that I'm like five foot three and I'm clearly shorter or I'm the height of the young Marvin kids, uh, there it is. It's all drastically different symptoms and like variations and stuff like that. I've learned so much attending the conference, but at first, like having, you know, like a best friend with it, I just went off of her kind of like that was what it was. And then I learned so much more about it with, um, being, being diagnosed, having it, like having your father, having it also having probably like a protective part of you with your toddler sister, having it. And you, did you ever, I don't know if you experienced people that would say like, well, we'll pray for you to get better or we'll pray for it to go away. I'm curious if that came up. Cause for me, that was like, that's a huge, uh, now teaching point, but back then trigger for my resiliency, like budding, uh, <laughs> where, where it came from with a place of compassion. And also if you ever, um, defined like your worth based off of off of it so in regards to your first question with the condolences the prayers healing thoughts what what have you there were a lot of people who did that um i think that was attributed to the fact that i was a young kid and i looked quote unquote normal um no one really saw anything wrong again, quote unquote, wrong with me. So she should, she's fine. She can run around, let her be a kid. And when they heard more of the details, that was when, oh, well, we'll pray for her. And I think that was actually more of a trigger for my, my mother and less so for me, because again, I was still trying to deal with it in my own head. And my struggles were more on the end of your second question, which was identifying my self-worth with this condition, because I distinctly remember the first interaction I had with someone outside of my family who knew about it was a friend at school who had decided to tell all the other kids at school that Marfan syndrome was contagious. And that was when no one wants to sit next to you at lunch. No one. And I was already a very weird kid. Mind you, don't, don't, <laughs> do not, do not mistake. That's when we get along. I had plenty of reasons that people didn't want to sit, sit next to me at lunch. I was, I was fine with that. But then it was, then it was mandatory for a lot of people to not be around me or to talk to me because they could get this, this disease. And it's not even a disease, but that's what the mentality became. And so for a lot of the time it was, I can't tell people about this because then they ask the questions and then they have the opinions and, and the stigmas. And I just, I hid, I had to take a, wear a heart monitor to school. So I had to hide it and all of these different things that just made, I didn't want people to know that I took special medications for my heart. I didn't want people to know about what happened to my dad, even though I had to find a way to be able to talk about those things for my own mental health. I wouldn't allow myself to do that because it would just open up a whole can of worms that I wasn't willing or ready to focus on. So I think for me, the self-worth more so than the prayer was my trigger because I based so much of who I was off of the physical appearance that actually, so you're tall, you're thin, you obviously get put play into volleyball, this category. Play basketball. Exactly. <laughs> get into this, into this category where you have to play a sport. And so once that was taken away, because playing sports would actually progress my condition further and faster, it was one of those moments. It's like, so what am I? Who am I? What do I do? <laughs> and I think that self-worth was focused so much on what it was before. And then 
this new transition made it so much harder. It's like all of a sudden letting anybody know that that this is what was going on equaled just enormous isolation, right? Like, and conversations you weren't ready to have and, and being isolated. And so hiding it meant social connection could still be in, you know, whatever form it was going to be in. And yeah, like, like very confusing, I think, especially at nine, 10, 11, 12 years old to be having to live inauthentically in an attempt to live authentically, right? It's like, you're trying to be authentic because you just want to be treated like, like you're normal because you are. And then inauthentic because you're hiding like a huge piece of things that you're doing. Like I'm like imagining like nine-year-old do like contraptions under your clothes and like, no, what, what are you talking about? That's that BB noise is coming from outside. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And then even, so the, the fun story, I got medical clearance from my cardiologist when I was in middle school, because my middle school was so small that I could play sports because if I didn't, if I wasn't at least on the team, there wasn't a team. That's how small the school was. <laughs> so, so imagine that, that like there's, there's a very small friendship pool already. But then, so I was able to be on the basketball team purely for intimidation purposes, or I was on the volleyball team purely to stand in front of the net and hold my hands up <laughs> and just be there. But then in particular, what I remember the most was being able to play softball, but there were so many regulations. I had to wear a chest protector while playing softball that just, it made my shoulders so broad and made my chest so wide. And I'm just sort of waddling up to the plate because if something happens where I get hit with the softball that they wanted to protect that. And I had the largest padded helmet and all, and like shin guards, I'm just waddling out to the plate. (laughs) And I just go, it was, I know that the whole sports thing was kind of to help the self-esteem, but did we really achieve that? (laughs) Did we really achieve that with this one? I think all the other ones may be sure, but this one, not so much. But I, I look but now it's a, it's something to laugh about and I love it. But at the time it's like, do I really want to do this? So I just, those I remember for sure. <laughs> Isn't it an interesting shift though, when you go from like, you know, and it, it's like an awakening that all the stuff that you were mortified about as a kid, you know, as an adult, you can look back and just, and just laugh and like, and you, and you think about it happening to your kid and you're like, you would be on the sideline being like, they're so cute. They're big bats. Like, you know, we think they're adorable. And like, meanwhile, <laughs> the reality, their reality in the moment is like, this is, do you want me to do what? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, it's horrific. Cause you have your peers that like, there is no emotional intelligence. I don't know what year it was that you were diagnosed, but like when I got diagnosed and then I had, you know, an NG tube in my nose at 12, going back to high school, like going back to eighth grade, uh, it would peer you don't have the emotional intelligence first of all it's not taught in schools you're being taught stuff that i didn't use again later in life and your peers you have to come like you're a very big heart person like i am and so you want to you're being hurt by these people you also have enough wherewithal to know that they're not doing it because they're like assholes they're they literally don't know but you you know like and so it's i don't know if you felt this but i was constantly torn with this um like trying to protect all of them from having to know my stuff. So they didn't have to take that on while also trying to figure out and navigate my own world. But my, my bigger was taking care of everyone else. My bigger was like, 
I don't want my mom to be stressed out. And Laura knows that's a huge still to this day. And December 1st was 28 years I've been sick. So it's like, it's been a long haul and it's still going on, but it's, you have all that stuff. And so then how do you tell a bunch of kids that age, like they're, they're not equipped to handle it. So it's, and then I don't know with you with when, when I got sick and I know that like there's a big age gap, but I wasn't sent to therapy when my life was changed forever. Like that mental health isn't equated. And I know that like yours is a, a you know, genetic condition. It's different. And, but yours is lifelong and mine is a chronic illness forever, unless the prayers to make it go away work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm fasting about that. Um, so, so you, you do have something that's literally changing your entire lifetime in that moment. If something happens, cool. And there's, you're not given any tools or techniques, right? That's exactly right. So you, you like literally have to figure out how to find your, which is why I love like teaming up with Lara for the radical and the resiliency. Like you're, you're not, we're not going through something because we have a toolkit. Like you, we literally are in radical ways finding our resiliency within ourselves because you were a kid trying to navigate something that adults can't handle. I mean, people right now can't handle wearing masks. Yes. They, they want us, they want us all to stay home, right? They want us all to stay home. Um, <laughs> but but yes, yeah, I think for me, especially because mental health is so, there's such a stigma. Therapy is, is considered for some reason, for some asinine reason, therapy is considered failure for a lot of people. And I think that was something that was definitely ingrained in, in my father's mind growing up. And, and so to have him have his own issues in regards to the, there's a guilt that he has, even to this day, he has a guilt that he gave this to my sister and I, despite the fact that there's a myriad of scientific data that would tell him otherwise that it's 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 a 50-50 chance regardless of being passed on but he has that guilt and I can't I can't take that guilt from him I can't explain it away that's his journey and I think that was something that then because he didn't address that when I was a kid it kind of just bled into how I felt about it. It kind of felt like something I needed to be ashamed of or something I needed to be worried about. And I don't, and it wasn't until I finally got to a point where I could make the decision myself to go to therapy that I was finally able to answer all of these whirling questions in my mind. And I think it actually wasn't until I, I had my own open heart surgery back in 2014 that I finally was able to go, no. I had many questions before the surgery. <laughs> I have even more questions after the surgery. I need to talk to someone about it. I need to see someone. And when that finally happened, again, it's not by any means, quote, uh, fixed for a lack of a better term, but it is getting better. And I've had a a better relationship with my diagnosis since then. What do you think changed? Like what like what muscle or, you know, like whether emotional or whatever, were you flexing that, that helped shift that? Because I, I agree. And it's a lot, like a lot of parallels from what you're saying, but what flexed and maybe like, if you think back to where else did you see little parts of that little muscle, like getting worked or maybe being, you know, the seeds starting to grow and stuff, because that's, you know, the, the beginning of the shift for everything. So it was definitely after the surgery that, the muscles really started to get flexed 
flexed because was your surgery um, life threatening? Like, was, was there a no? It was planned. It was planned. I was I was very fortunate. I have an I have an amazing cardiologist and Dr. Liang at uh, Stanford oh. Hospital. He's my favorite. <laughs> I'm slightly biased, but um, he he knew he kept he kept great watch on me and knew exactly. He's like, okay, so it's either going to have to be this summer or next summer, and the summer after the summer I actually had my surgery was when I was going to be graduating from college. And I made the executive decision within myself that I didn't want to go from a graduation gown to a hospital gown. And I gave myself that, that time, but I had it right after school let out. I had the surgery and the time between the surgery and when school started was sort of my personal goal to be ready to fly from California back to New York and start my senior year of college. That was my healing deadline, so to speak, which was in hindsight, absolutely ridiculous because (laughs) there was so much more healing that needed to be done rather than just physical. And so going back to your question of when the muscles were flexed. So actually right before the surgery, I had this realization of mortality. Mortality had always been something in the back of my mind and that I had to acknowledge and I had to sort of accept. And it was just another realization as you're writing your will at 20 years of age and deciding who's going to be able to make the executive decision to keep you on life support or to pull the plug and having to put that responsibility on someone else and deciding who would have your best interest at heart while also not wanting to put too much pressure on them all of those things that sent me into a tailspin. And I talked to a counselor at my college and I just had a moment where I just blurted everything out and I felt better. And then I had that one session and then I went, I had the surgery. I went through my whole healing deadline process at home, flew back to New York. And I remember there were multiple moments where it's like, okay, so what now? Because there was always this this idea that surgery was a when, not an if situation. So now that I've had this life saving this life saving surgery that's supposed to double my life expectancy and make everything easier, all of the things that people were telling me were supposed to happen weren't happening. I actually felt very uncomfortable inside my skin because even though I was physically and scientifically and medically healthier and better it was unusual to me. My body didn't feel right. On top of the fact that there's a, there's a weird sense of violation that comes with, even though you, you sign up for it and you, you give full consent, there's a weird sense of violation that happens when you realize how many people have touched your insides. (laughs) Uh And I don't, I'm like, I don't have any other way of wording it. It just, it felt weird that there were a room of people and whoever, however many people, because it's a teaching hospital, mind you. So however many people were in the gallery have seen your lungs, <laughs> your heart, all of these things. When I had my colon out, they were going in and out of my butthole. And I was like, right. all of these people have been in my butthole. And also the fact that, the, so when you're out, people are putting in a catheter or people are shaving you. And people, these are things you don't think about when it comes to surgery. You go, oh, someone shaved me. Someone 
someone put a catheter. It's their job. Of course, I don't think they necessarily get any enjoyment out of these things. I don't know. Who <laughs> They're might. probably so desensitized, but we had, you're still, you're like, oh, that's weird. But you have that realization within yourself and you just go, okay, that happened. That's weird. And trying to just push on and trying to go, no, I'm here. I have to do school. I have to, I have to get ready to go off into the world and, and be a, and be a working professional. I had that, I had a second breakdown. I had a second tailspin of where I'm like, I just don't feel right in my body. And that was when I made the, the decision and rightfully so the decision to have consistent therapy and talk to someone and acknowledge that without this, without this supposed deadline that you create for yourself on your life expectancy, because when you have a number and you're told that your life expectancy, you're not supposed to see past 30 or 40, that dictates your life a little bit, that guides your decisions and makes you a little more fearless. And all of a sudden after my surgery, I wasn't as fearless anymore because I had time and time just became such a fearful concept to me that I finally just realized, no, time is a gift. And also, if you look at it, do I really have time? Because I could go walk outside and get hit by a bus. So it doesn't matter with this condition, whether or not, no, time isn't guaranteed whether I had this surgery or not. And it took actually talking to someone and getting these thoughts out of my head because there are so many and they all just try to scream over each other. It was actually getting those thoughts out that finally let me accept and thrive in who I was. Oh, I love that you say that because I am a huge believer of sharing your story and not like, not that it means you have to be on stage in front of thousands of people and, you know, like, and, and become this huge speaker. Like, it's not that it's just sharing your story. The minute you speak it, you literally take the power away from it. And I, cause I held my, what I was going through for decades quiet because I was afraid I'd lose jobs. I wouldn't get booked. I, you know, like, I mean, you, you know, if you have a medical condition, you're immediately, if they come down to two people, they're not taking you unless you work for the foundation and they understand your condition. But uh, like that, there are so many other risks that you then have to take care of. And every time you do that, you there's, I don't know if like, if you experience this, but subconsciously and probably on a conscious level too. Uh, yeah. I'm damaged. Yeah. I'm broken. Yeah. I'm uh, like, because these all were the evidence I needed to prove that th- that was true. Cause now I have to keep this a secret and I have to keep the secret and I have to make sure everyone's okay. And it's spiral. Like you spiral so far out of control and then God forbid you need help, you know, like just to talk to someone that's that if I had therapy decades before my entire life would be different because I would have made choices loving myself. Right. That's exactly it. And I think for me, it was funny. I went from kind of telling people about it because I got a little more comfortable telling people about it in college because I was so far away from my family back in California. I was in New York. I, I was nowhere near my cardiologist. So if something did happen, I wanted people to know, hey, don't freak out. But here's this. And here's the emergency plan if you need it kind of a deal. Before the surgery, that was the kind of mentality. And then after the surgery, now I had this scar down the center of my chest that I was, that I kind of overcompensated. It was like, I have Marfan syndrome. I have this. I had open heart <laughs> surgery this summer. Hi. Hello. Uh, every first date, every first date, because you, you know, it's so, so dumb, but you know, that. so 
<sighs> and I'm not generalizing all men, of course. However, there is something to be said about when they look at your chest and a scar is not the reason you necessarily want a guy looking at your chest if you ever do in the first place. But there was that moment where I'm sitting at a first date. I'm like, yes. So before you, before you ask, I had open heart surgery. I have Marfan syndrome. Here's all this. What are your questions? <laughs> and sometimes, and sometimes it's a great icebreaker. Sometimes it just makes them want to ask for the check. Which rules out the, the shittier people, but it's hard to know that when you're going through it. Cause I did the same thing when I couldn't eat food. They're like, well, if you can't go to a barbecue and eat, then I don't, you know, and it's like, that should have been the red flag. Like, oh, they're not a quality person. But I was like, what do I need to do to make them want me? Like, it, yes. I chased them harder. It's like, I have to I have to prove something. I have to show them. That, and because I have this surgery, I'm so strong. I'm so cool. I'm so great. And yes. it's like, scars. no. <laughs> it's like, scars are cool. And it's like, no, that's not. Laura, <laughs> you need a surgery. You need to have some stuff done. <laughs> oh, yeah, you have. She's in the club. There you go. You really grabbed my attention when you were talking about that post-surgical trauma because I had, so my first surgery, I was 18, almost 19. It was my first year of college. I was in school for musical theater and my whole identity was built around my singing voice and my speaking voice. And I had this surgery to remove nodes from my vocal cords. Everything went really well. Um, And then I couldn't speak at all, period for two weeks and I couldn't sing for six months and I couldn't, and I had to go to speech therapy to relearn how to use my vocal cords so that I wouldn't end up with the same problem again of getting nodes. And also that, especially those first few years, it was just a lot of potential for scar tissue to develop. So I had to learn how to speak correctly and which (laughs) anyone listening who is the speech pathologist I'd probably sound terrible right now because I've been doing nothing but speaking on Zooms for nine months like everybody else in quarantine. But anyway, um, I was so lost. I, I mean, I didn't know who I was. I didn't, I didn't realize probably for years the way that that affected me. And then I have had a DNC after I had a miscarriage, which was a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of feelings <laughs> wrapped up in that. And then I had this most recent surgery um, where I have a scar now on my neck. Um, the vocal node surgery, they went through my mouth, but this for this surgery, I had um, my par- two of my parathyroid glands removed. And um, while the effects of uh, hyperparathyroid syndrome, which is what I have, um, is not anything compared to what you and Katie deal with medically on a regular basis, but it did leave me a nice, pretty, like chunky monkey, like looks like someone tried to take my head off, uh, all execution style. And <laughs> that was it. That was a really interesting recovery too, because it was, I experienced a lot of physical changes after the surgery because my circulation changed, um, improved, but it was weird. Like all of a sudden I went from like freezing in bed every night to like roasting and needing to rip covers off and push people away from me. And like, and, and it was just getting to know myself completely newly. And then also at that, by that time I had become really athletic. And so like I had to take my time getting back because you don't realize how much of the, your body, it depends on your neck muscles being in, in good shape. And all mine had been severed and needed to not only repair themselves, but then like re-strengthen. And that was an adjustment. Like it is, there's a lot of, of stuff that goes on with voluntary surgery and 
So it is, I mean, and then, and then I imagine like the involuntary, like the DNC had like, that was also traumatic, but more expectedly. So like, I think people expect you to be like, oh, you weren't expecting every aspect of what you've just been through. That Like there's maybe you should talk to someone, but the ones that you sign up for yourself and like, let me sign on the dotted line. This sounds like a good thing for my health. I'm going to do this like there that doesn't, you know, and then afterwards your life is better. And, and everyone's like, well, why aren't you just happy about it? And you're like, yeah. I don't know how to deal with what's happening. <laughs> that, that you, you just summed it up so well. Exactly. Because- you become, you become like, it's safe. Like it was not that I want to be in the hospital, but I knew how to be in the hospital. I knew how to be this way. And so then it's like, oh, you took away my tubes and now I might like, I haven't gone to the bat. Like I didn't go to the bat. I didn't, you know, poop from 1992 till when I had my surgery in 2009. And it was a couple months down where I finally had like, and now I still need medicine again. And it, you know, didn't stick, but to go that long without doing it. And then it's like, yeah, but now you can poop like, but it's like, well, I haven't done a basic bodily function for so long and it, and you don't know how to do it. And it's almost like, not that you want to be in the hospital, but it's you, you learn a whole different way. And it's just like, well, how do you, you know, it's like if someone goes through a basic thing, they're like, oh, you had this. And then they send people to rehab to do that and stuff. It's like, well, why do you pick, pick and choose what warrants aftercare? Because that it, it's just mind blowing. I want to take a huge pivot real quick because there's a part of you, Lara and the listeners don't know this part, but so with your job with the foundation, you I just, I really respect your, your relationship to boundaries. And I actually had made a post online today about it, about like, if you're a giver, you give, give, give and takers, take, 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 and like learning a healthy boundary. And what I admire about you a lot is, is your ability to, um, to walk this, this healthy boundary. So what they don't know is that you're, you know, like you work for this foundation and you are a professional. You're a professional where you make the calls, you call the shots and stuff. You are also younger than a lot of the people who attend the conference. And there is, in my experience as a, as a speaker and a performer there, so correct me if I'm wrong, but in my experience as an observer of it, there's a lot of conflict from you wanting to be a young adult in the young adult group at this conference and to also be a professional. And I feel like you know, so the, the sense of you dealing with, with everything you go through, speaking out and all of that, being the resiliency, like knowing there's no shame to your story, like taking away the power of it. But I'm curious, how do you find the resiliency to show up in that way where you don't then shy or back away from like your, your confidence comes off in such an incredible, um, polished, graceful way at the conference? Because and and all everyone listening, like she'll have people that she's kind of, there's a group called young adults. There's a group called teens and children. And then there's like older people. I don't think they have a group, but so she could be part of that group and go, but then they are like, well, you do this. And they kind of, and this is, again, I'm speaking from my observation, push you out almost. And I wonder what the, how you create, you, you do have the healthy boundary and you do try to be there and you do want to be a peer to them. How do you find that dynamic in a way of being like resilient that you're still resilient? Cause it's, it's almost like you're back being a kid where it's like, how do I go to school, have this condition, make sure everyone else is okay, but not make them my priority. My self-care is my priority. I feel like you have, you have a better hold on that within this position now and you're older obviously, but what part of the resiliency and what part of you is able to show up more for you to show up in that position. Not that it's not also a challenge because I can imagine it would be. Well, it is still definitely a challenge. Not by any means have I found the exact way to handle it. I think it can still be fairly situational. But 
um, to your point, it's very interesting because I grew up with this organization. I went after I was diagnosed, I went to I went to the annual conference and I had this there was all there was one weekend every summer that I got to just be me and just be. And that was so important for me and so integral to my development that I think that's what actually, when the opportunity arose to become a part of the organization on a professional level, I think that's what fueled it. I think that is my experience with the with the foundation and with this organization growing up. Like you, you knew what it could create and offer people. Exactly. Okay. It did so much for me, and I wanted to be that person for many generations to come because mm-hmm. people. Uh, Katie, I believe you've met met them, but like Maya Zimmerman and Ben Weissman, they ran the teen program when I was a teen, and now mm. they and now I consider them confidants, mentors, and friends. And it's amazing to now actually be in charge of the teen program myself with a fellow teen that I grew up with, uh, Peter Donato. We run the teen program together, and it's a very much a full circle moment. And I think that was maybe how it manifested the difficulties because these were my, this was my family. These were the people that I, that I spent so much time with and was able to just. So they kind of still have you locked in that, that spot. They have you as like Domingo there that they grew up with and you're not allowed to mature. There was that part of it. And then I think it was also just trying to find the balance of patient professional lifestyles. And I, and I, and I'm, I think you were very kind and I think it, I don't take compliments well. So I very, so thank, thank you so much. I think that's why it's thrown me off a bit, but I, I, you're, you're so kind in what you said. I think I get that from making sure that my, my colleagues and my, um, my bosses understand that I am a person first, a patient second and an employee third. Mm. I try desperately to keep that. and. I think the healthy boundaries you are. <laughs> I think that that's actually what how it, that manifests in my professional relationship with people because I come to them as a person first. I come to them then I also come to them with my relatability in the sense that I have the same condition or a similar condition because Mar- the Marfan Foundation doesn't just focus on Marfan syndrome. We focus on Marfan syndrome and related conditions, whether that be vascular EDS or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or Lois-Dietz syndrome. And all of these different people from all of these different diagnoses have made up this community. And I think being able to go to them in a way that... I just know how they feel a lot of the time. Again, not end all be all, but I have, there's this relatability, this unspoken relatability that just comes out that it makes it a little bit easier for me to have that boundary. Now, acknowledging the fact that I still have my moments where... What? You're still human? <laughs> no. <laughs> Perish the thought. No, but it, I still have my moments where I like, like the mask thing earlier. I still have my moments where I'm like, okay, well, maybe there are some people in our community. Okay, wait, take a step back. But I have, I have my moments where there, I have, luckily, I have a few people that I always know that I can go to just as a person. I can, I'm, my partner, Joseph, is 
is great in the sense, <laughs> especially during this pandemic, I can go and be like, what is going on with the world, with life, with my job? And he's just, and he's able to hear that. And, but I also have that within the community. I have, I have a few people that and I can me. talk to and you, obviously that was going without saying, but I have people within the community that I can talk to, to kind of just vent and let it go which goes along with the talking once you talk about it you do have a a healing i was going to say it's so remarkable about like the thing that i enjoy the most like the little detail and there's so much to enjoy about you but the, the 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 little detail that i love the most is that you went from the kid who hid everything to the woman who is the first Marfan patient working at the Marfan Foundation, getting on podcasts, talking about it, like, you know, and, and, it, and, I, and I know you said if, if you had even talked to me five years ago, I've been like, you're nuts. But like, clearly there was a, tr- a, a transformation that happened that made that the person that you became. Was there an aha moment there for you? Like, how did that happen? <laughs> What was the secret? (laughs) Uh, I would have to say it was actually a bunch of little aha moments. There was no one big aha moment. I would love, it would be a lot easier to say I had my surgery and I had an epiphany and here I am. But um, I think there were a lot of little moments that, so I think even the comp going to my first conference, meeting, meeting other teens and kids that, knew exactly how what I was going through and I could just talk about it or not talk about it. That was a little moment. Um, being able to go and talk to high school nurses or being able to talk to paramedics because, for instance, there was a moment where I had to be taken away in an ambulance and sitting in that experience thinking that, oh gosh, I'm going through what my dad went through and having a paramedic say, oh, Marfan syndrome. Tall people have that, right? And you realize, Oh, oh crap. These are the people who are supposed to be taking care of me and you don't know what you don't know your stuff. Really? Okay. And that little moment I think spiraled in in a good way. It it kept the wheel turning and it that growth just kept going and then it was it was when I'm not even kidding you, it was right place right time. I had gotten let go from a, from a job that I was not right for by any means. And I was in between jobs. I was working at a theater in New York part-time trying to figure out what, where my next step was. And the foundation had an opening. And I just said, do I really want to make this my life? And I said, why not? And that I think all of these little moments led up to that, that not huge moment, but a bigger moment that now has gotten me to this point. I'm as you can tell from, from how I discussed my people poking my insides. Um, I'm a, I'm a fairly open person about it. It's, it's, I don't, I don't make it, it's not, I don't make it my life, but it's part of it. And I acknowledge that and I'm willing to talk about it because if you don't talk about it, you, you, you just let it stir. And it, it, you, we've seen how that manifests and it ends up being more physically physically painful than not talking physically emotionally mentally everything yeah it runs you until you just acknowledge that it's there and then you run it after that yes so amazing i want to um 
be mindful of the time, but I have one thing to say just because just to get um, a point either proven or <laughs> disproven. But for me, I feel like there's, there's a lot of programs out there that teach resiliency like, like I do, but they believe that there's just like one way. And the whole point of what Laura and I are trying to do is that there's a million ways to get where you need to go and tr- like, trust yourself. We need to, we need to let people know that they have more power than they think. So for me, and a lot of people say like, you have to love yourself first and do everything for yourself to get where you're going. And I, and I, there's value in that. Like I, I get that, but for me, and it sounds, and I'm just curious if you agree with this statement, sometimes for me, I had to borrow the belief and put it in others. Like how you spoke, like you knew what the foundation could do for the people attending. And you, there's times when that was your motivation versus like, what is the best self-loving choice for me? So I think for me, a lot of my resiliency was like, okay, this happened. I'm not over, uh, you know, I'm not over this incident, but this person deserves their legacy to live on. So I'm going to speak out for them. And I think there's a lot of, I don't think it all at all. <laughs> my dogs are going crazy. Um, I don't think it all has to be like just you become this strong person. You have to do all this. Where I think sometimes it is about what we're doing for other people with the healthy boundary that you created. Would you say that that's also like a part of it is that you sometimes you do things and made choices for you. And sometimes it was truly your love of helping others and your belief in what you can create for the world that led you. You nailed it on the head. Um, I think for me, I feel better helping others. And that's just, I get this little warm, fuzzy feeling inside when I'm, when I know that someone else feels better about their condition, whatever it may be, whether it's Marfan or something else. So I think that is definitely something that fuels me. And on top of the fact that what you say, I I really like what you say. I completely understand the need for sort of a cookie cutter way of dealing with this crazy little thing called life that we have, but there is no one way. And I love helping people find the way, the way that's right for them. And that has nothing to do with me. That, that does not, that, that I can tell my story. I can say, this is what worked for me, but I will never say that this is the way to do it because it's, because that's not uh, what, uh, what works for me doesn't work for you. It doesn't work for my younger sister. It doesn't work for my father. And we all have the same, the same diagnosis, technically the same genes that cause this diagnosis and it, we all have to handle it differently. And so I, I think what, what really drives me with this is, is allowing everyone to handle it in their, be- in their best way and being a part of their journey. Because then that also seeing their journey helps mine and affects mine and, and guides my choices and the ripple effect. Exactly. And it can, it can, it can be good. It can tell me what I want to do. It can tell me what I don't want to do, but there's no right or wrong way at all. I am so awestruck right now by who you are, because what I see is like this amazing person with a condition that that takes that elasticity and stretches it out but who with who you are you create that elasticity you know you create that connection you create it for the people in your community you created it just now for our audience you've created it with Katie like you 
you are the embodiment of elasticity. Like that connection of my story helps your story helps my story and they don't have to be the same to create that that connection between us. It's just who we are as humans. Like we're not an island. We are together. We're connected. So I'm just like blown away by the fact that you're this, that like you are the opposite of your condition. It's so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually, honestly, I've never heard that comparison and that just blew my mind. So thank you. Yay. And speaking of making things, knowing what's right for you, this next part of our podcast is about playing a game. And I am the queen of play and uh, teaching that there's a big difference between childish and childlike. And so we're going to play a quick game. The first rule is there's no rules. And the second thing to do is you're going to find something that is the color that I name. You have 30 seconds to get it and come back. And that's all you have to do. Nothing else matters. The color is yellow. Okay. Laura, you go first. And then we just share. Uh, This is going to be awesome. My thing that I have that's yellow is a picture that was drawn by my nephew who is six years old and he's learning to read and write. And so it says Matthew and has X's and O's and hearts at the top. And then on the bottom, this says um, Princey cat. So I used to have a cat who is named Prince and Matthew loved my cat has always, even though the, the cat has been gone for a couple of years. And so he drew a cat and put a crown and the crown is yellow, technically gold because that's what crowns are made of and it has jewels <laughs> in it. And he, so he drew Prince, a Prince cat, Princey cat, and then, drew, and then wrote it. And it's, the did he mail it to you? He did. And then he put it in the mail and sent it to me. It's the best gift I've ever gotten. And I was so excited to share it because you have a kitty. Yes. Actually, a fairly new cat. And I was going to say you only had the dog. And then I saw you post online that you got a cat. And I was like, what is she doing? Going to the dark side. This is a dog in a cat's body. I will tell you. Princey cat was a dog in a cat's body. That's why he was so awesome. Exactly. There you go. I'll try to (laughs) accept it. What do you have, Dominga? So I it's okay. So it's like orange, yellow. And then that's fine. But off my bookshelf, I craft so the TV show Veronica Mars, the creator of the show actually started when the show ended, started writing books to continue the story along. <laughs> and I, the, fun fact, Veronica Mars was my post-op recovery show. I just been I binged all of it. And so I I reread this book on ad nauseum. But it so yeah, I grabbed this because it means so much that uh such a like a strong ba woman was there for me in my time of not feeling so ba and that and so immediately when you said yellow and i was like i don't have yellow in my house i don't really particularly like yellow and then when i said when i saw this i was like it's kismet so yeah awesome katie what's yellow in your space the heart on my mask, my mask is full. My mask that I happily wear is full of rainbow color, all different hearts. So I spread love while I wear it and respect and compassion. But I love yellow the most. And I actually tried to find a print that had way more yellow. So I like when people ask about it or when I call stores, I'm like, do you have heart prints with yellow? Because I want it to be really 
eye eye catching. So I went and got that, and I just love it because I feel like it's the most love bomby kind of thing you can wear if you're gonna wear it. I love. I'm like I'm making it fashion. It's way better than a colostomy bag or a tube feeding. You can you can dazzle it up. You can dazzle. Who says you can? Yeah, I was gonna say you can dazzle up that colostomy bag. I'm not one. Do it. I think you could. Now you can. Now you can even get (laughs) cute little things to go over your your G tube, like snap. I mean, they've come a long way. But remember, I got sick in '92. In every aspect of of the medical profession, they've come a long way in so many things. Yeah, like ankle braces are much cooler now, and chest and chest braces are much cooler now than they were back. But not prison anklets; they're still the same. (laughs) I was just gonna say the coolness of um, the technology that goes into hearing aids was how we got my grandfather to wear one because he was an engineer and was dead set against it until we were like, "Well, look at what they can do now, isn't this?" And we like got him a few handbooks of like how they're made, and then he was like all in. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) That is awesome. Uh, so, uh, Domingo, where can people find you on the internet or what would, where would you like them to go? How do like, this is your moment. Market what do you want? <laughs> all right. Well, for more information on Marfan syndrome and all that it entails, they can go to marfan.org. And on there, there's plenty of information as well as we have our blog ses- section, our blog section, and I actually make an appearance quite a bit on the in, on the blog section. I um, they they ask me a question and <laughs> I try to give as much insight as I can on a topic. I actually recently wrote a blog about uh, the five things I wish I knew before I had open heart surgery, and so that's up now. And if you just want to find me. Uh, I am on Instagram at domino44. And then that's pretty much where I post all the lovely pictures of my life with my dog and now my cat and answer any questions that anyone has about anything, really. I get a lot of a lot of questions about surgery, about about coping. And so that's the best way to find me. Awesome. So it is time for our final game and it's called get out of here with a Boston accent and <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> uh, the rules are that we're going to get out of here, but we're going to a made up make believe fantasy world that could be a book, a movie, a TV show, a land that you made up when you were a child, but you just, you know, so where are you getting out of here to? I'm going to get out of here to what's the world where She-Ra lives? Oh, yeah. Etheria. Uh, yeah, that's where I'm going. Yeah. That's where oh, I'm, yeah. I'm going to hang out with Glimmer and She-Ra and Katra and just have a, have a grand old time. You just met your best friend. Yes, you did. Because <laughs> I'm not wearing it today, but I have a T-shirt that is the new She-Ra that definitely was where I was getting and out of here to talk about on it. more than one episode. <laughs> For yes. well over 24 hours straight. <laughs> I love passionately, it. Passionately, passionately. I might have How been Seahawk for Halloween and my boyfriend was Mermista. <laughs> and we definitely like went to the climbing gym in masks and my mask for Halloween had a mustache on it like that I cut out I and pasted on the mask. It. And all of the lights in our house are named for Shira characters, like all of our smart, smart outlets. So to turn the lights on and off, I'm like, Alexa, turn on Seahawk. <laughs> yes. I, can't, I can't believe that we, I can't believe you two are into Shira. That, 
Not I'm getting not- out of here to Sheerland with you. Done. Yes. Sold. There we Sold. go. We're going. Katie, where are you going? Um, I'm actually going to, I just had to figure out what the name of the show was. I fought tooth and nail. Um, uh, Bo wanted me to watch a television show with him and I hate TV. So I fought it, sat in the other room being kind of bratty and wouldn't really listen to it and was doing my own thing. And he's like, put your phone down. I was like, I'm fine. And then he fell asleep and the second episode started, he missed the whole thing and I became obsessed with it. And now I'm like, right when, right when we finished recording, I'm going out to watch it again. So I just messaged, what was the name of my favorite show now? And he just wrote like that, like emoji hitting yourself. And then he said, Queen's Gamut. So I would live there with that girl who can play chess. The chess uh, one. Yes, that's on my I list. I am oh. excited that maybe that was so Josh and I are just about to finish binging uh, Doctor Who. We are one episode away from the finale of season 12. Maybe Queen's Gambit is the next thing. Dominga, we did, did we just become best, best friends? Yes, yeah, you did. We did. Found <laughs> each other now. This is so good. All right, ladies, let's get out of here. It's been so amazing having you on the show, Dominga. We just love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. What a wonderful, wonderful evening. Good night, everybody. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us that sweet five-star review. It helps people find us and makes our hearts ever so happy. You can follow me, Laura Ingalls, at LJ Ingalls on Instagram and Twitter. And me, Katie Lasky, at Katie Lovebomb on Instagram. Or follow the pod at Rad Resilient Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And check us out on the web at RadicalResiliencePodcast.com. However you find us out there in this virtual world, know that we are so glad you're here. We love you and we'll see you next week.